three, two, one. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest, somebody I've been trying to uh, you know, tie down for an interview for a while. His name is Derek Bros. His YouTube channel is The Conscious Resistance. And he kind of came to my attention. I was doing some research on Jeffrey Epstein. He has an excellent documentary that he put out recently. It's very, it's, uh, very popular. It has about over 300,000 views. The title of it is Bringing Down Jeffrey Epstein. And the primary reason I wanted to talk to Derek is he actually did some legitimate real journalism and traveled to Florida to uh, interview some of the people directly involved. So I'm really pleased that he has taken time out of his busy schedule to agree to an interview. Derek, are you there? I am here, man. Thank you for that awesome intro. Awesome. Well, I appreciate it. I appreciate you taking the time. So people who have not heard your name, maybe you could talk a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in these topics, and then maybe we can talk about your journalism on Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah, sounds good. So um, my name is Derek Rose. I'm, I'm based here in Houston, Texas. I've been in Houston my whole life, and uh, I got involved in activism and journalism in, in uh, 10. I started first a blog and then an activist community, or you know, I like to call it an activist alliance, uh, called the Houston Freethinkers, and uh, I was involved with the Houston Freethinkers from about 2010 till 2018 or so, and things have just kind of winded down more recently. But while we were active, we were involved in everything from you know building community gardens to hosting skill shares and documentary screenings and what we call info jams, going out to the streets to busy events and passing out flyers on whatever particular issue we're focusing on, uh, civil disobedience, protests, rallies, marches, I mean, you name it, we've been involved in it. And uh, really, we're able to become a force in Houston activism and get covered by all the local media and connect with a lot of different activists around the country. And that's how I started to get into uh, journalism. Once some of the other activists, just different people who've been active around the country, took note of what we were doing in Houston, they you know, started to, we started to connect and these people started to become friends and allies. And sooner or later, uh, my buddy, John Vibes, who ended up becoming my co-author of my books, he helped me get uh, my first little writing gig. And it was just, you know, doing some stuff, uh, just doing some, some kind of blogging and re-aggregating of different news and, and analyzing news. And I had uh, never done anything like that before. I didn't go to school for journalism. I just have realized I, I love to write. And, uh, I, you know, I've, I get I get some compliments on my writing, so I guess it's it's uh, doing well enough, and I love to do it, and so it's become from like a passion and sort of a side job, I guess you could say, to pretty much all that I do, and over the years I've written for for the anti media, for Mint Press News, for uh, Ben Swan, another journalist, his Truth and Media website, um, the Free Thought Project, just a number of different alternative independent media sites, and you know also have focused on different issues and things going on here in Houston. And then, as I mentioned along the way, uh, John Vibes and I, we've written a trilogy of books together, the Conscious Resistance Trilogy, which uh, the Conscious Resistance is a website I founded and, uh, you know, kind of a network I founded in 2013, which is basically a way for me to have a place to voice my own opinions that wasn't just about the Houston Freethinkers so that my, my thoughts and personal opinions wouldn't be taken as me speaking for that group. I felt it was necessary to have a separate place for me to express my ideas and uh, you know for me when I say the conscious resistance when I talk about that idea it really is just this understanding this recognition that I think that the way the path to a better world 
it has to involve both exposing some of these physical institutions of power and some of the things we're going to talk about today, like people like Epstein and the pedophile culture. But also I think that there is a, a spiritual component to it as well, that you know there is a, a need for internal individual healing that has to take place in order for people to really be able to uh, move past, for us, all of us as a species, to move past some of this darkness. I think it is going to take us going deep within our own selves and and working on our own traumas as well as working to expose the traumas in the you know physical world so that's what i call the conscious resistance and my books have focused on that my website my content journalism kind of explore everything from anarchism and government to jeffrey epstein the finders to 5g and a, a whole range of issues you know i'm just after the truth and trying to share what I find on my journey, you know, whenever I find information worth talking about, I, I feel inclined to share it with anybody who will listen, whether that's, you know, social media or in person. And, uh, and you know, you, I've, in the last couple of years, I've... You, go ahead. I'm sorry, you've also been involved in kind of going to these collaborative uh, groups where people share ideas such as Anarchapulco and Free Mind Conference, is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say over the last couple of years, uh, I've I started speaking publicly in 2013, but in the last two years, it's definitely become more of a regular gig, like speaking at, as you mentioned, Anarcapoco in Acapulco, Mexico, as well as the Envision Festival in Costa Rica, and in a number of different activists slash libertarians slash anarchists slash truther conferences and festivals and transformational festivals. And I really do make an effort to try to speak to a wide range of people. Um, so that I can spread these ideas far and wide and not just confine myself to one sort of philosophy or ideology or dogma or things like that. And yeah, just, you know, so sometimes those ideas are more like on the philosophical side. Sometimes they are more about the journalistic work I'm doing and a combination of those things. But yeah, that's basically who I am and what I've been involved in for the last nine years or so. Cool. And you've got a lot of those talks at some of these conferences and your interviews are on your YouTube channel at The Conscious Resistance. So I definitely encourage the listener to go and take a look at all of the, the kind of repository of information that Derek has on his uh, YouTube channel. It's really great. I didn't get through everything, but I watched the Jeffrey Epstein documentary and the Finders documentaries, and they're superb. Uh, so I commend you for uh, doing those. But maybe, maybe we can start kind of how did you come across Jeffrey Epstein and why did that become an important journalistic enterprise for you um let me try to think about that one so i was uh I've, so i've done two u.s speaking tours uh over the last couple summers and last summer we were starting to wrap up the tour and you know obviously while i'm on the road all the time just driving all day and, and like the tours are pretty involved it's like we're doing meditations we're doing talks we're doing um we're doing community garden. We were doing a lot of volunteering everywhere we visited and things like that. So obviously when I'm on the road driving and doing those sort of things, I can't really be at home like researching and, and working on journalism. But I was definitely feeling the itch to get back to it. I was just like, man, because the tour was about four months, you know, on and off of just like three weeks on the road, two weeks at home, three weeks on the road, you know, just really time consuming. And, I'm, and I enjoyed it, of course, but I, I definitely felt like, man, I want to get home and start focusing on journalism. And so about that time, I, you know, I had already covered Jeffrey Epstein in the past over the years. Like I've done a few interviews and a few videos that you can go back and find prior to 2018 that I had done here and there because I was aware of who he was. But I hadn't kind of stopped and dug deep into it. And I had worked with a, a, 
a partner of mine, he lives in the UK and he's just an amazing film editor and he's the one who I worked with on Jeffrey Epstein and the Finders. And I met him in Houston when he was down here doing film work a couple years back. And so I told him, like, I want to get back to making these mini documentaries. Like, let's let's focus on this kind of more long form, in depth content that's going to be eye eye catching and you know attention grabbing. So um, I noticed that there was some movement afoot. That Epstein's case was kind of still going on. There was these different cases going on, and that and around the time that uh, we were planning to release the docu- documentary, which it came out October. I think it came out early October or early November, somewhere around then, was right around the time whenever his next court update was going to be taking right. place. So that was 2018, correct? Yeah, yeah. So I, I purposefully aimed for that time to put it out because I knew that his name was going to be popping up again. And I also knew that there's a lot of people who don't know the story of him. And also, the more I dug into it, you know, I, I, I understood the story at first, but I didn't know it quite to the depth that I do now, of course. And the more I looked into it, I was like, holy crap, like, whoa, this is just like the most blatant, obvious example of like a cover up and of, you know, somebody with a lot of money and a lot of influence and a lot of connections getting away with with a, a horrible, unspeakable crimes. So I decided to just dive further into it. And then also just, you know, this happened a couple times on tour, actually, just through some kind of synchronicity right as I was planning to uh, make the documentary. Uh, we actually ended up in Florida, and I was able to go to Jeffrey Epstein's house, or at least the house that he has in Palm Beach, Florida, and film the kind of opening scene that you see in the documentary right outside of his house. So all of those things just started lining up while I was on tour, and I was like, all right, I guess this is what I'm supposed to be researching right now. And uh, Yeah, I mean, you really got into some detail, but you were the only person that I've seen that actually has talked face-to-face with uh, attorney Brad Edwards, who had like a long-running case against Epstein in Florida, and the 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 timing and the synchronicity was remarkable too, because I think you were talking to him right as the Miami Herald piece came out, right then. So like your your documentary came out, the Miami Herald piece came out. You're interviewing the Brad Edwards case, which settled after something like ten years, and maybe you can talk about how. You came across that court case on how you talked to Brad Edwards. Yeah, sure. So, you know, that was, again, I got to say, like, just support and thanks came, you know, going to those who follow my work because that came together really at the last minute. Once I saw that case, you know, it's like, I got to be there. I got to go there. And um, some supporters from the Mind Unleashed helped cover that and, you know, just different outlets since I do freelance work pretty much I I have different connections and I can reach out to people and be like hey I want to go cover this you know would you guys publish this and so I I did that and you know we all knew it was important for somebody to be there especially because even though we knew the mainstream was going to be there we also know that they don't they don't they definitely don't always cover the truth and I think that's obviously that's a pretty obvious statement there you know I'm sure your 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 audience is not surprised by that by any means um but, you know, we just recognize the importance of somebody who is not within the corporate media to be there in person and to uh, ask these questions. And also myself, like like you said, I haven't seen any interviews with Brad Warner. I mean, with uh, Bradley Edwards, I've seen him uh, quoted a few times here and there. I've seen him discussed, but I haven't myself been able to speak to him. And I actually reached out to his law office a couple of times prior to that Um and I hadn't received anything. So I figured this would be the perfect place to go there and here in person and get some. And also, I was hoping by some small chance that Epstein would be there. But anybody who's familiar with the case, or even if you're not, you know, the way that Epstein works is, you know, he doesn't 
ever show up to these cases. That's how much power he has, that even though they summon him to court, his lawyers are able to work out some kind of deal where he never actually has to show up in person. Well, so, you know, he's, he's never there. He, he hasn't been seen in years, like other than a time here or two, like at a, in New York City or something like that, uh, over in his New York mansion. But for the most part, we do know that he's just living off in his, his private island now and, and trying to avoid all press and all people, especially as his case is getting more and more scrutiny in, in recent months and years. And I honestly don't think anything's going to come of it. But there, there was for a while, there was a lot of talk of Epstein shortly around the, that period, October, November. And even in the past couple months, some of the Democrats have actually started to question um, uh, Acosta. Trump. Yeah, Acosta, Trump's pick for, for uh, Labor Secretary, who was very much involved in the deal. And, uh, you know, so it got some attention where some of the Democrats are like, oh, we're going to force him to testify or this and that. And I don't know if that's just political posturing, you know what I mean, or if they actually plan to do anything about it. Well, well see. there was a statement at the hearing of Barr when he was getting uh, okayed through the Senate where Ben Sass from Nebraska asked him to take a look at it. So I think that Barr is looking at it from a professional responsibility aspect. And also the... Uh, there was another uh, judge in Florida who vacated the original uh, agreement between Epstein and Acosta, who was the U.S. attorney, saying that they violated the uh, was it the Defendant's Rights Act or the CRV? Yeah, the Victims' uh, uh, Rights Act. Yeah, right. yeah. You know, you're definitely correct about that. That might I, we could see some traction. Like the best case scenario, I will say at this point is that. So now the judge has already ruled that it was illegal. We know for sure that the deal was totally illegal, but that doesn't necessarily mean if they're going to actually, you know, say, okay, well then now Epstein is is eligible for retrial, or that he's now open for more charges, you know, because potentially, he if that were to happen, he could face like a huge onslaught of new charges and you know people willing to uh, take the case. But I did, you know, based on the research I've looked into, that apparently one of the only places or where what some of the cases are based is the Southern District of New York, and right. it's apparently a pretty corrupt uh, well, district. Yeah, they agreed not to look at the case. They denied to look at the case in New York. And the decision in Florida, uh, the settlement, got rid of any state cases. So it was, a, it was supposed to involve any state's rights. So I think the federal and state stuff that involved Epstein are not going to... Be, cannot be addressed by the state, if I remember correctly. But the Brad Edwards, just to cover the Brad Edwards, that case was about a defamation that Brad Edwards claimed against Epstein, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, that was that was related to so the some of the high powered attorneys that Epstein has hired, like Dershowitz and others. Basically, they countersued. I mean, there's so many different lawsuits going on related right. to this. Uh, there's all you know, but for this particular one. Um, they accuse Brad Edwards and the other attorneys of just trying to, basically just trying to make money and uh, of of fraudulent, you know, legal activity, and that led to Brad Edwards uh, suing back, not only to defend himself but to defend like his clients, and so there was a chance that they might be able to testify. The you know at the hearing that I went to, that was kind of another reason why I wanted to go is because for the potential for these victims to actually testify, but before that could take place, of course, Epstein like plead out and gave some half-assed apology and, you know, not apologizing for molesting hundreds of young women that we now know of, uh, but for defaming Brad Edwards' character and for, I mean, he did essentially admit that he lied in the sense that 
he was attacking the women and Edwards were even filing the suit saying that it had no merit right. and he had to apologize saying that that was a lie that okay maybe there was some merit which by you know that obviously indicates that okay then there might be some truth to what he's saying so it was kind of in a roundabout way an admission an admission of guilt but not you know directly for the crimes right so i mean it was a civil case and he had his attorney uh make his statement right so his attorney said in public like jeffrey epstein's statement if i remember correctly so that case settled but there still were two other cases one between virginia roberts aka virginia jufre and Ghislaine maxwell who they say uh virginia roberts said that maxwell defamed her and I don't know what the resolution of that case. And then another case just popped up recently, which is between uh, Roberts Maxwell, uh, Roberts Jufre and Dershowitz. So yeah. that was an incredible recent filing that uh, really kind of brings it back up. And Dershowitz is on TV now, kind of denying everything, saying he's glad that he's going to be deposed. He wanted to depose her, but then another. So Dershowitz now has two young underage women who say that Dershowitz had sex with them while they were underage. Not just one. There's another one by the name yeah. of Ransom. Uh, so, yeah, this case has not gone away. It's still relevant. No, it's absolutely relevant. And that's why I, I think it will stay relevant. You know, all I was saying before is I'm not sure that, like, like you said, maybe Barr will investigate it if that could come separately from the whole thing. At the least, we might get the truth right about Epstein out now. I mean, Honestly, I tend to feel like at this point, what it would really take for some justice to be served to Epstein is for some sort of like private force to go to his island and to bring him back and like, you know, have some court that would be willing to hold him accountable. Because obviously this dude has so much power and he's got dirt on everybody from Prince Andrew to, you know, the Clintons to all kinds of people we don't know, potentially Trump and others that, you know, he's able to use these connections to keep from from being even brought to court to you know, to testify or anything right. like that. That's so. an excellent point. And isn't that, don't you think that's one of the reasons why the corporate media will not touch this or will not actually lay out very simple factual analysis of this other than the Miami Herald? You can't even see, like, somebody trying to unpack the complexities of the case. They just keep it vague. They're not answering questions on the corporate media. It's amazing. Yeah, and it's. It, I think that is a big part of why that's happening because they just there's so much to lose here. And I mean, like really the more and more you understand about the Epstein case and how it relates to the larger picture of the sort of pedophile culture, then I think people can get a clear image of why they, they're not hearing about this. Cause I mean, even with, so, all right, no problem. Um, so we were talking about, uh, how, how it's not being covered. And really one of the fascinating aspects of this recent case taken by Jufre, by the way, uh, Roberts Jufre has excellent attorneys. She's got, this, these Castle and um, both Castle and another uh, boys, David Boys, who's uh, probably one of the top super lawyers in the country, representing her. But in one of these filings, there was an affidavit in her recent filing where uh, Dershowitz threw Nathan Mervold under the bus. And Nathan Mervold, nobody ever knew he was involved in the case. The guy's like number four at Microsoft. And uh, did you read those affidavits? Yeah, I saw that. And yeah, it's, 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 there's just so many layers to this. And I think, okay, you know, back to why this isn't being covered. I think a, a, a big part of it is the complexity. Like, for example, maybe 
like even in the independent media, I'll say like independent alternative media. Sometimes I have problems with other people in the independent alternative media. I'm not going to mention names. It's not worth mentioning names, but that's why I strive for what I tried to do with the Epstein documentary and the Finders documentary is have some like everything sourced, have the transcript available, um, and be able to back all that up because. For one, it's very complex, and people in this day and age just call anything they don't believe fake news, so I want to be able to show them documentation and evidence. But I see sometimes an oversimplification of the case. Like, obviously not everybody needs to know the deep, deep, deep stuff. I guess you just kind of generally know there's a billionaire pedophile, and he got away with crimes, and there are people covering it up because they may be involved in different ways. And you know, But there's so much to do with Epstein beyond just the, the documentary we did. I've also looked into some of these claim the different accusations of Epstein being connected to like Israeli Mossad or some type of is intelligence agency and that his house, uh, his private island, which reportedly had cameras and was able to videotape all these different people, all these celebrities and politicians being involved in this sex rings that he was running, that that itself could be, uh, could potentially be what is known as a honeypot in the intelligence world and basically a way to either blackmail people and catch people involved in all kinds of things that they wouldn't want the world to see and then to use that so that somebody like Epstein could get away with it, you know? And, uh, so there's a lot of different angles to this and I do see like in the media, either a reluctance to cover it, which obviously they are not going to get into the people that are potentially implicated, uh, or they just oversimplify it and they kind of do just like a brief rundown. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to go in person because there's just a lot of layers here and there continue to be a lot of layers. Um, I'm going to continue to do Epstein, videos whenever it's relevant you know i didn't i'm glad the documentary did well because obviously i made it so people would see it mm-hmm. but i you know it's not like the single topic i want to focus on necessarily right. even sure. though it's it's extremely important well on that note let's talk about how you got involved in the finders case you've also interviewed somebody i interviewed john brisson about uh, this strange kind of cult that was uh it started off the investigation started off with a police arrest with two guys and a bunch of children who were like malnourished and under yeah it was just a very strange case but i think that was also an important uh case to investigate yeah no absolutely you know this is kind of interesting it was one of the other examples of what i was saying when i was on tour i started to think about different cases or ideas that i could get involved with and it was the epstein case 5g and the finders and finders i'd heard about for several years you know just kind of in the back of my mind i'd seen like some some short videos, uh, and I've seen. I came, eventually came across John Brisson's work and whatnot. But I had kind of heard about the Finders, but it was like, for example, there's a channel called Stuff They Don't Want You to Know, mm-hmm. and it's a pretty interesting channel. They they do like really short kind of summaries of big stories like this. So they do the Finders story in like four minutes. You know what I mean? So that's like all I'd ever really say. Okay, wow, that sounds kind of crazy. You know, heard bits and pieces here and there. But then when I decided that. I was going to start digging more into the finders. It was just, again, like the same thing with Epstein. Like, it was just like, holy crap. Like, I didn't realize there's this many pieces of evidence and there's this many, you know, connections between this and this. And, and it just, it was, I was astounded and also just convinced, like, yeah, I got to keep going with this. I got to go even further. And uh, again, we happened to be on tour in Florida. And as I was digging into the finders, I found an ex-member of the finders, not just any ex-member either, the former spokesman for the finders and you know, in his words, the right-hand man of the uh, main guy involved with the finders, Marion Petty, who by all accounts seems to have been some type of intelligent agent, intelligence agent. Uh, 
and yeah, I ended up being able to sit down with him for about an hour to get that interview. And that was honestly when I was very, very, very new to the finders and I had a, a basic summary understanding of it. And uh, I wish I had known more at that time because I would have dug a little deeper and kind of questioned, uh, questioned Robert Terrell a little bit deeper. But ultimately, that was the beginning of the Finders, and then I just spent the next, you know, I did the Epstein thing, and then I, after that, I just dove right into the Finders, and we ended up releasing the final complete edition, I think, in like late February. But we've released, I've released a, like a seven-part investigation, which kind of goes through the different pieces of evidence. I got the interview with John Brisson. I got my uh, two-part documentary. We put it out two pieces in 30 minutes, but the final edition is a one-hour, 59 minutes documentary that is uh, has a has a different edit than the the individual 30 minute pieces and the audio is a little bit better and whatnot but yeah it's a deep dive into the finders and i do believe that i was able to find probably the most evidence for or the closest to the truth of what's going on you know using the available documentation which some of it was only released in 2017 through freedom of information act request so the case is 30 years old but it's still uh, highly important and and i guess i should i didn't even mention like what the whole case is about should i yeah sure <laughs> just for people who don't know yeah, okay, so if you're listening and you're not aware, the Finders was basically this case of, uh, you know, again, related to potential pedophilia and child trafficking, sex trafficking. 1987, there's a, a van of two well-dressed men and six children. They're at a park in Florida. Somebody anonymously reports them to the police saying the kids look disheveled, dirty, hungry, etc. And uh, this leads to an arrest of the men and this sets off like a national and international investigation into this group, this cult known as the Finders that was based in Virginia and D.C. and uh, reported in the other parts of the country and maybe in parts of the world. And yeah, it just really set off this firestorm of investigation for a few days and then within a week, the mainstream media, the Washington Post, New York Times, all these major publications basically went with the story that it was all a big misunderstanding, there was nothing to see here. The group had been accused of everything from Satanism to child trafficking uh, to pedophilia to uh, also being in some sort of intelligence front and then later you know, connections to the CIA become really clear. But yeah, again, somebody steps in and piece by piece, the local authorities, the state authorities and the federal authorities all back off. There are individuals within the federal agencies and within the local police who still to this day claim that there was some kind of cover-up. Um, I was also able to speak to U.S. Customs agent Ramon uh, Martinez, who is a real a key player into this whole thing. He wrote a U.S. Customs agent report, which to this day stands as a key piece of evidence in the whole story, detailing seeing pictures of naked kids and instructions on buying kids and just a whole host of things that you would ha have to really, you know, really stretch the imagination to think that he could just imagine such detailed things and write this report and you know which is what they said they blamed it all him said he that he you know made things up then he was demoted he was uh moved and and just apparently just decided to move on with his life i ended up finding him and communicating with him via email he confirmed that he still stands by his story he agreed to do an interview with me and then he very quickly backed out and then i made a trip to maryland uh to go find him and uh, I approached him and shook his hand and told him who I was and he told me to get away, F off, to you know just stay away from him and you know he, he didn't want to talk but I did make that effort and uh, yeah and so the finders happened more than 30 years ago now but it's the people, some of the people are still alive, some of the people who are involved are still alive, still out there and the cover-up still exists and there are people also still alive who tried to kind of raise alarm bells and, and raise awareness and say that this was this cover up was going on. Just another really crazy thread of 
you know, I hate to put it in the conspiracy culture lore because I think it's much bigger than that. And with our documentary, which is called Who Will Find What the Finders Hide, I really tried to take it out of the conspiracy realm and make it where it's more like what I consider to be a true crime documentary. Because like I said, we provide the transcript, all the sources, everything, the documentation. I'm also working on uh, some USB drives just in case anybody might be interested. The films are available online for free. But for those who want like their own copy of it, we are going to be mailing out these USB drives that will have the HD full version of the film, the audio version of the film, like podcast, and then my full one-hour interview with Robert Terrell and a bunch of supplementary material, plus all of my research that I did individually, all the documentation that I found, just basically a huge document dump with my documentary and everything that I used to make it. Um, and we're selling those for like 10 bucks. So if anybody's interested in that kind of thing and they want to get more into that, again, check out the documentaries on YouTube for free. But if you want to get one of your own copies, you can reach out to us at The Conscious Resistance. And yeah, it's just another crazy story, yeah. man. That was really a crazy by. story. Yeah, and like they're, they actually didn't even have a known public name for that group and the finders term just became applied to them if I my memory serves me correct yeah you're correct about that they didn't necessarily they got the nickname the finders they claim it came because they collected finder fees and that they they claim to be an international group of journalists and mothers and just former hippies who wanted to live a communal lifestyle and this and that but um it definitely seems like there was much more going on to that yeah. and then they claim and they eventually yeah, got this nickname because they were uh, apparently, as part of their journalism, they were finding information for people. And they definitely had access to computers and technology in the 80s at a point when not many people really did, other than, say, governments or intelligence agents or just people who were, you know, I guess, tech people who understood right. the technology already. Um, and they and, had that kind of dial-up capacity in the van that was found with the kids, too. So oh, that yeah, was even more bizarre. Were, yeah. yeah. They were they were ahead of their time. I mean, they were able. It describes like, basically, it describes in the um, in the warehouse. There's also a description that kind of re re sounds like broadband internet or something because wow. you talk about like sending communications to. Marion Petty told the the rest of the finders to get out of town and how to hide the kids and how to avoid the cops and you know, all kinds of interesting things. So there's just again like if you watch the documentary, read the transcript. Uh, look at the investigation that I put together as well as others have done and, and you can really get to the bot or at least get pretty close to the truth I think I don't know that we'll ever really truly know the truth of it unfortunately because so much time has passed and because people are still lying and still covering things of that uh, but I do think that we can get pretty pretty close pretty close to the answers and uh, you know I think that it's it's probably about as close as we're going to get at the moment until uh, the living people who are involved decide to speak up if they do. Gotcha. I mean, it's still kind of relevant. Like you see this whole Nexium case taking place in New York, trials taking place. And, you know, this group seemed to have that kind of similar kind of secrecy and international qual uh, elements or in definitely interstate. Um, so, yeah, really good documentary. I only watched the two half an hour segments you did who will find the find who will find what the finders hide so check that out on the conscious resistance i know you have to go pretty soon maybe you can do you've been doing some recent research on 5g and the rollout of this new cellular technology can you kind of do a brief kind of analysis or, or what your opinion is of this new technology yeah absolutely so again like 5g is something that i started to get into when i got back home from tour and was looking for a new journalistic project, and I noticed that uh, 
the city that I live in, Houston, was one of the first test cities for the rollout of 5G. And 5G just means the fifth generation cellular technology. So the uh, first generation is just basic phones, you know, the giant phones that people had in the 80s and 90s. And then uh, 2G would be like flip phones with text messaging, 3G. You started to get like basic video and things like that. 4G, which is where we've been, faster downloads, video streaming, all that kind of stuff that we know. 5G is the name that's given for this next generation of technology that's rolling out where uh, we're going to be moving into what's known as the Internet of Things, which we already have, say, laptops and smartphones and, you know, there's increasingly smart fridges and smart devices and things of that sort. The Internet of Things is basically the name given to that, where over the next decade, decades, we're expected to see the implementation of millions of new data sensors, whether that means smart fridges, driverless cars, robot assistants. Um, smart toasters, smart everything you can think of, smart houses and all these different cameras and sensors that are going to be interconnected in what they call the Internet of Things. And in order for that to happen, we have to go to 5G, this fifth generation of cellular technology. And what 5G involves is millimeter wave technology. It involves something known as MIMO, which is massive in, massive out. And basically just the essential, what it essentially means is that we're going to have to have uh, millions of new small cells and cell towers and different devices. The small cells can be like a backpack or a fridge, depending on the size, depending on what it is. They can be applied to other poles. But since they are easily blocked, they have to be installed every two to 500 feet. Wow. And so in the next two years, and it's already kind of beginning in most major cities, but in the next two years, we're going to see a rollout of this technology at a level that like, say, for example, the last two to three decades that we've been getting cellular technology becoming the norm, those however many thousands and hundreds of thousands of towers we have out now took three decades to come to, you know, come into the place they are now. And people, there are already studies and already questions about the safety of cellular devices and Wi-Fi. And oh, yeah. there's very serious concerns. There's a lot of legal things within the documents that the cellular companies provide to the landowners that... Uh, uh, basically indemnify them from from physical harm. You know, there's a lot of stuff in those contracts. Yeah, absolutely. And so, the, you know, beyond the... So there are a number of health concerns. There are a number of people are concerned about being surrounded by even more towers, even more cells and devices and what that will mean for our health. But also there are some serious privacy implications as well. Um, and there are also just basic, like, you know, I would say sovereignty issues in the sense that the FCC, the federal government, last fall, right around the time when I was getting into this issue, passed a passed, initiated a new rule that basically said that local governments had no more say over how 5G and future cell infrastructure was going to be rolled out, that it was basically all up to the federal government, the FCC, that the local governments, city governments, municipalities, states couldn't decide what they want to charge where, you know, you can only, they can only argue about placement. They can't, you know, study it for health. They can't, you know, sort of severely restricted local power. And then a couple of months ago, Trump passed an executive order, which basically furthered that even, you know, more and said that now localities, he accused the cities of being greedy and saying like, oh, they want to charge too much. So now we're going to make it where cities have 90 days to approve new cell towers and new infrastructure because we got to get to 5G before anybody else. It's part of what the cellular telecom lobby is pushing as the race to 5G. And so you have China and Chinese companies and U.S. and American companies really pushing this faster than you know anything I've ever seen. And so Houston is one of the test cities 
uh, and it's being rolled out here. It's some, an issue that I've really taken on. I've been able to question the mayor of Houston as well as uh, the CEO of Verizon. I've interviewed uh, experts on the science and the health aspects of it as well as the privacy and security aspects. And I do have a playlist on my YouTube channel that's all about 5G, the health and privacy that people can check out if they're interested in learning more. Well, it's a very important topic too because the if once that 5G comes into place, God only knows what's going to happen to all of your electronic devices. I mean, you're looking at, you know, Fourth Amendment violations of all things. You just basically can be monitored or whatever, not just your cell phone too, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be just, and that's what I mean with like all the increase of these sensors like each of these sensors can be hacked very easily for say some 10 year old kid who knows his shit or by a government or private corporations just there's a lot of security and privacy risk because most of these sensors are also doubling as in many cases as microphones um, and listening devices and you know things like that so there's just it's an unprecedented level that we have never seen before. And when I interviewed uh, Matt Cagle, he's an attorney with the American Civil Liberties Union, he said in his belief that 5G could be a wolf in sheep's clothing. Right. Yeah, there's serious concerns there. So you also recently are interested in running for mayor of Houston as well. Is that correct? Yeah, I decided to throw my hat into the ring, I guess. And uh, like I said, I've been active in the city for almost a decade now and in such a variety of ways I've questioned this current mayor and the previous mayor I've questioned the previous police chief and I've had run-ins with the cops because of my journalism them sort of targeting me and coming you know and focusing on me I also was you know leaked images back in 2012 from a, a source within the department showing that the police department were focusing on their surveillance and on me and my, the Houston free thinkers and my activism. And so I've dealt with the city in a lot of different ways and tried to com combat the power and sort of educate people and get people involved locally. And, and to me, this is just the idea of running for mayor is just to sort of another avenue. It's definitely not a typical political campaign. I think what people are used to seeing, especially for somebody like me who on the philosophical side of my work, I've definitely spent a lot of work dis time discouraging people from political act action, especially on the federal level. But I have said that if you're going to get involved local, as local as possible, is, is always going to be the best. And uh, I realize that, you know, I have my YouTube channel, I have my website, and I write articles and videos, and I do all these different things. And I get certain people that pay attention. My work is growing, and I'm thankful for that. But at the same time, you know, just by adding the the words candidate for mayor next to my name, all of a sudden there are certain people who might listen, hmm. people outside of our circles, more, I guess you could say, normie types who aren't this sort of things or haven't found their way to it, who might be like, oh, wow, that guy is running for mayor. Maybe I should listen to what he has to say. I could say the exact same thing, just Derek Bros, the YouTuber, and they might not pay a single, uh, you know, minute of attention. But then uh, all of a sudden they think I'm a candidate for a position a position which, by the way, I'm not even really running to win. I'm running to spread awareness and spread ideas, like to talk about 5G, to talk about surveillance, to talk about Houston has a pedophilia sex trafficking problem as well. We have a cops killing people problem as well. We have all kinds of different issues that I've reported on as a journalist are taking place here in the city that I live in. And this is just, for me, another avenue to uh, reach people and to talk to people about it. So I have officially launched that campaign. The election is spending the summer, instead of touring and giving talks all around the country, I guess I'll be kind of touring around the city of Houston and spreading these ideas and 
really using the campaign as an opportunity to talk about bigger, much, much bigger issues. And, and maybe by through, you know, through this campaign, some of these folks will go check out my other work and check out some of the things we've talked about today. And uh, I don't believe that I'll be able to overcome the millions of dollars that these other candidates are spending in order to win. But I do think that just by being a candidate in there, I'm more than likely to get some local media coverage and get them asking questions or at least looking at the topics that I'm talking about. Either that or they'll just completely try to ignore me. I, mean, I just announced a couple of days ago, so I guess we're going to see. And I've got my first sort of like town hall meet and greet event coming up in a couple of weeks. And um, actually, as soon as we're done here, I'm going to be doing a, a lot, my first kind of what I'm calling like live town hall live streams that I'm going to be doing every Friday related to the campaign just to connect people and nice. talk about some of the ideas. Cool, man. When did, when did you say the election was? Is it coming up this summer? This November 5th. This November. Gotcha. So yeah, it's this so November... Are you running on any specific ticket or as an independent? No, that's, and that's another reason why I'm really excited about it is because here in Houston, the local politics, a mayor race, there's no parties. So even though it's sometimes obvious, like the mayor, current mayor, he was a former like state congressman who, ran as, who was a Democrat. The other two candidates are obviously fairly conservative, but there's no parties involved. And oh, I'm, yeah, I wouldn't do it if I had to, like, you know, kind of pledge allegiance to some party. Um, I, I would be independent. But I just like the fact that that's not even a part of the conversation. I'm just going to be myself and run on the ideas I have. And if people find value in them, then they'll check them out. If not, then, oh, well, like I tried this as another avenue and then I'll move on. I'm, it's just not going to stop me from doing the investigations I'm doing or doing my reports or anything. It's just going to be, like I said, a different avenue to try it out. And this is also my, I plan to move out of Houston at the beginning of 2020 to continue moving in the direction of, uh, you know, building the community that I want to see and, and creating that as an example for people. So to me, this is kind of one last sort of, you know, effort to awaken the city that I live in, you know? Cool, man. Well, I wish you the best of luck. Again, uh, name is Derek Bros. Conscious Resistance on YouTube. He has three books, The Conscious Resistance, Reflections on Anarchy and Spirituality, Finding Freedom in the Age of Confusion, and The Manifesto for Free Humans. And the documentaries that I watched on the YouTube channel are Bringing Down Jeffrey Epstein with over 300,000 views. I highly recommend that. And then he just said he completed a two-hour video on the finders titled Who Will Find the Find What the Finders Hide? I didn't re watch the whole thing, just the, the two half-an-hour segments. But there's also some other great interviews you have with Paul Greg Roberts, John Perkins, Edward Griffin, Wade Madsen. So there's a lot of material there that uh, I highly recommend people check out. And if people want to get in touch with you, send you an email, are you on any other kind of social media platforms? Or uh, The best way to get in touch with me is into the light at protonmail.com. Into the light at protonmail. And I, I vaguely remember you're kind of moving off to all kind of all tech sites. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm definitely trying to encourage people from using uh, or encourage people to use alternative social media platforms as well as alternative search engines, alternative emails. I mean, we have options out there that don't have to be dependent on Google and Amazon, and I just want people to uh, give them a shot. Awesome. Cool. Again, Derek Bros, thank you so much for the interview. It was a great interview. Thank you, man. Appreciate right. it. Have a great day. All right, man. We're done. Thanks, man. Have a good one. Good luck with right. the uh, – good luck with the –